tonight is Psalm 123. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. The Lord is the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of the mistress. So our eyes look to the Lord our God, for he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us. For we have had more than enough Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease of the Hey guys, welcome to RUF. Glad to be here with you. If we haven't had a chance to meet, I'm Bailey. I'm the campus minister here. Um, each week we look at God's word because we actually think that there's nothing better you could be doing with your time on Wednesday night than considering what God's word has to say. So before we jump into looking at Psalm 123, let me pray for us and then we'll get started. God, you're good. We're thankful that you are a God who speaks. You're a God who gives us your word um, to direct us how we can glorify you, but also to direct us how we can enjoy you, Lord. Um, God, I want to acknowledge that so many of us come here tonight um, in different places. For many of us, this is the highlight of our week, and we feel the most energy um, right now than we do even in our classes. And others of us have been up really late studying and taking exams um, and we're tired but we trust god that you will give us what we need to not only pay attention to your word but to see your son our lord jesus in it so we ask that in this time that you would help us see your son our lord jesus is more beautiful it's more good and more true and we ask all this in his name amen so you and i both have what we could call a deep-seated desire to know God. Um, And here's what I mean by that. We, as people who are created in God's image, have a deep-seated, this is what John Calvin, a 16th century French theologian, he calls it the seed of religion. He says the seed of religion is in all of us. And what he means is that we all have the truth that there is a God, there's a living and true God. God created us. Um, And he created all things. And that truth is deeply implanted in us. But as a result of our sin, as a result result of the sin we inherit from our first parents, Adam and Eve, we either deny that reality or we distort that reality. And here's what I mean. Like we deny it because we convince ourselves that there isn't a God. Left to ourselves without God entering into the picture and saving us, we would deny that there's a God. We would convince ourselves that God doesn't exist, both internally, like what we feel, but also as we look to creation, we would deny that there's a God. At the same time, we distort that deep-seated desire that we have, right? And we do that by taking created things, things that God creates, and actually propping them up in our lives to be gods, right? We deny the reality that there's a God. We distort the reality that there's a God, right? Left to ourselves, you and I both, deny what is true. We deny what's really happening in the world. So why do I bring that up? Why do we start with this kind of assertion? In our passage tonight, in Psalm 123, this is a song that God's Old Testament people, the Israelites, would sing as they would travel up to Jerusalem for various feasts and holidays. And it's a song about who God truly is, 
right? It's not only about who God is even, but it's actually about how they relate to God, right? It's a song about that. And what they're saying in this psalm as they're singing is that God is above us. God is greater than us. God is majestic. He's on the throne. And if we're honest, if we can just be honest for a second, when we read things about God being above us, God being enthroned in heaven, God being greater than us, God being like a master to, over servants, in some ways we don't like to hear that. Like in some ways that rubs us the wrong way. But here's what I want us to see tonight, and this is what I want you to see. I want to invite you to see this with me. When we see the reality of who God truly is, we experience freedom, right? We experience freedom from the burden of creating a false God that's like us. We experience freedom from serving our own idols. We experience freedom from relying on ourselves. So tonight, I want to break this down into three things. We're going to see the freedom of being creatures, the freedom of being servants, then last, the freedom of mercy. If you're a note taker, this is for you. Freedom of being creatures, of being servants, and the freedom of being, or the freedom of mercy. So let's hop right in. The freedom of being creatures. Like God is our creator, right? And what that means is he's actually above us. Um, look at verse one with me. If you've got your Bible, keep it out. Also on the screen. I forget the screen's there literally every week, but it's there for you, so follow along. Verse one says this. It reads, to you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. And what we see with this kind of statement, we see this a lot in various places in Scripture where the author is writing that they're looking up to God who's enthroned in heaven. And the posture is actually looking up. That's what's really in view here. Right? The psalm begins here acknowledging what's true, that God is the creator of all things. He's above all things. He's mighty. He's powerful. He's on the throne. Right? He rules the world from the throne of heaven. And this really first is a picture of the posture we take when we relate to God. God isn't someone who's beside us. Right? He's certainly not beneath us. What the psalmist is showing us is that God is above us. He's our creator. But if we're being honest, our natural inclination um, is not to relate to God like this. Because what it means to understand that God is our creator means that we actually have to relate to God on his terms instead of our own terms, right? And what we want to do, just because of our sinful nature, is we want to be the one that sets the terms and defines how we can relate to God, right? We want to approach God in the ways that we think are best. We want to approach God in the ways that we think are most convenient for us. But when we do that, we aren't approaching God as a creator, but instead we're treating him like we are the ones that are above him. We're treating him like he's beside us or he's beneath us. All right, so what does this look like? Like this looks like treating God like he's something or someone that you can only call on when you're in trouble. You say, yeah, I believe in a God. I'm sure he's out there, but I don't want anything to do with him until things go south in my life. Right? Maybe it looks like avoiding the parts of God's word that you don't agree with or the parts of God's word that make you feel uncomfortable, or the parts of God's word you feel like you can't show other people. Or when we do things like this, what we're doing is we're acting like we can control God, even though we can't. And in some ways, I think this looks like treating God like he's a vending machine. Um, I went to a community college at one point in my life, and the highlight of my day, every day, 
was going to the vending machine and eating one of those Kit Kat bars. It's the big cat. It's like one piece. It's like real thick. I see head nods. You guys know what this is like. Highlight of my day tells you how I felt about life at that point. <laughs> right? But when you go to a vending machine, what do you do? Like you go, you survey the selections, you put the cash in. I guess now you like swipe your jack card or whatever. And you like press the buttons and you get what you want in return. Right? When we treat God like he's someone who can be controlled, what we're doing is we're surveying the options. We're choosing the thing that we want, and we're trying to give God something in return so we can get what we want. And when we do that, we're actually treating God like he's transactional. Right? We act like he only gives us things like love, like peace, like assurance, only because he gets what he wants. That's how we're treating him. Right? And this is what we do when we try to come to God on our own terms. We're treating him like he can be controlled. And if we check off the right box, he'll give us what we want. So the question then is, how do we approach God on his terms? How do we approach God rightly? And the answer is really clear. It's that we approach God on his terms being his word and through his son. Right? God gives us his word so we can know who he truly is. And we can also know what's true about us. In his word, we receive the story of redemption, and we see God's plan for saving sinners like us. And that story, ultimately, it culminates in the person and the work of Jesus. Jesus even goes as far to say this in John 14. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. When we place our faith in Jesus, he washes us, and we can approach God. And not only do we understand that God's our creator through Jesus, we actually understand that we're adopted into his family by faith, and God becomes our father. So the freedom we find in relating to God on on his terms is that we don't have to try to guess what he wants. This means that when we understand that God is our creator who tells us how we can have a relationship with him, we actually see that God's near to us, that he gives us what we need so that we can know him. He gives us his word. He gives us his son. So we can't know God on our own terms. We have to know God on his terms. We approach him on his terms. So I think the question that leads us to is we need to ask ourselves, how are we trying to meet God and relate to him how we want to rather than how God tells us to? Right? How are you trying to approach God or how are you approaching God treating him like he's transactional? Right? How are you acting like a consumer in how you approach God. Let me ask you this. What are the boxes that you check off hoping that God will give you what you want? Maybe for you, you look around JMU and you say, I'm not like those party people that come to JMU. I'm different than them. Right? So you think, if I don't party, if I don't do these things that everyone else is doing, that I'll get good grades, that my parents will respect me, right? that someone will start dating me. Fill in the blank. Right? What's the box that you're trying to check off? Right? Do you think perfect church attendance is the thing God wants from you? You think, I won't feel lonely. Right? I'll finally start succeeding in my classes. I'll finally start making friends if I just do something perfectly and God will be happy with me. Maybe that's you. Right? When we put conditions on God, when we say, God, I will do this if you give me this, what we're doing is we're not taking him at his word. We're not relating to him as he truly is, as our creator. But when we do approach him on his terms, we actually find freedom. 
And it's because we don't have to strive to guess what he wants, but we can actually rest. We can rest in the fact that he gives us what we need in his word and through his son so that we can have a relationship with him for all eternity. So because God is our creator, we have to relate to him like he's our creator. And that means that we don't get to determine how that happens. But instead, we have, to, we have to trust the things that he gives us in order to know him. So in Psalm 123, we see that we have to relate to God as our creator. But we also see, and this is our second point, that we relate to him as our servants, or as his servants. And we find freedom. There's freedom in being God's servant. It's our second point. God calls us to be his servants. Look at verse 2. The psalmist writes this. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, and as the eyes of a maidservant look to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. So in the same way that we see that we look to God in this posture of looking up to him as our creator, we also look up to him as servants looking up to their master, as a maidservant looking up to her mistress. Um, Bob Dylan, doesn't it, does that name ring a bell? Okay. Earlier I was like, do uh, college students know who Bob Dylan is? I'm glad you guys do. Bob Dylan, uh, famous folk singer, songwriter, the grittiest voice of all time. He famously wrote a song called Gotta Serve Somebody. And as Bob Dylan, when he still tours, is like a really old man, he still plays this song every night on tour. And the song has this chorus and over and over in the song, he says, you know, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, you're going to have to serve somebody, right? You're going to have to serve somebody. What he's getting that in this song is that we all serve someone. Or we all serve something, right? And Bob Dylan here could not be more correct. We all serve something. We all serve somebody. No matter who you are, no matter where you're from, no matter what you believe, you serve something. We all do. Right? It's natural. It's the disposition of our hearts to serve something. And I don't think it's difficult for us to see this at all because we serve the things we love. We serve the things that we think will fulfill us. We serve the things that bring us pleasure. We, we serve the things that make us look good. Right? We serve our relationships. We think that if we put our relationship with a, with a significant other above everyone else that we'll never want anything again. We'll always be happy. We'll have a happily ever after. We serve our own self-righteousness. Right? We think we can feel better about ourselves if we can look at others and put them down in our minds. Right? We serve that. The truth is that all the things we serve in this world are terrible masters. Here's what I mean. When we look at the things that we serve that are worldly, the idols in our lives, sin, it's a terrible master because it overpromises and it underdelivers. They never give us what we really need. It always leaves us wanting more. In the book of Philippians, in chapter 2, Paul tells us that Jesus, God in the flesh, came to earth not to be served, but to be a servant. Right? He didn't come to earth in order to be a king who was waited on hand and foot. But he came to serve others. He came to live a life of perfect obedience to God's law. He came to pay the penalty that you and I deserve for our sin. Right? The way of Jesus, as Paul says in Philippians 2, is to be a servant. And what we're called to do in Jesus is to serve a better master. 
Here's what I mean. Jesus says this in Matthew 11. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is inviting you to serve him. And notice what he's saying in this passage in Matthew. He's saying, take my yoke, which is a thing that you would put on like an ox or a donkey to like work a field. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Right? What Jesus isn't saying is, hey, don't come to me and say you're not going to serve or you're not going to work. He says, come and serve me. Come work for me. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Right? Because following Jesus shows us what serving him truly looks like. Right? He's saying that when we serve him, when we serve God, what we'll find is rest for our souls. Right? But it's still serving. Right? It's by following Jesus that we see what serving God truly looks like. Um, years ago, I was an RUF intern um, at the University of Florida, which meant I like drink coffee with guys like seven days a week in Florida, which is a good time. Hot, though, don't recommend that. Um, when I was there, there's a student I was really close with who, uh, engineering's big there, and he was a mechanical and aerospace engineering double major, which meant he had like no free time, uh, and he worked a lot in class. And those two majors were actually like some of the most competitive like job, uh, I'm trying to think, like job recruiting majors. And what I mean by that is like SpaceX would recruit at UF, Lockheed Martin, uh, like all these kind of military, Boeing would recruit there. So anyway, just to kind of give you a picture of what's going on. He thinks when he gets to college, I've got to find a job when I get out of here. So I need to like find a way to become impressive with this double major. So he joined a club that was called Gator Motorsports. Gator, obviously, UF, but they made race cars. And so what they did was each year, they would legitimately build a race car from scratch, and then they would go race it. And the club was really unique because like SpaceX would recruit out of this club. So it was a really big deal if you were in it. And their performance greatly mattered in this club. So this guy, he joins the club as a freshman. He starts building the car. And pretty soon, he's like really serving this club. Because about a year later, the club takes over his life. He becomes vice president. He starts skipping classes. He quits coming to RUS stuff. He quits going to church. He like doesn't hang out with his friends anymore. And he spends every waking moment in the shop building the car so much so that he would sleep in an Eno hammock in the shop so he could get there at 6 a.m. and start doing everything over again right and he did this so much so that it burnt him out and he realized that this club was a terrible master because what it promised him was that he would have a good life if he could build this car and do it well and what he realized was it overpromised and it underdelivered. Right? And what really became good news for this friend of mine is that when he looked to Jesus, he realized that he wasn't treated like the club with Jesus. That Jesus invited him to take his yoke upon him and learn from Jesus. When we serve Jesus, what we're doing is we're serving a better master. Because being a servant of Jesus is completely different than the worldly things that we serve or we have served. Right? Because Jesus says, serve me and I won't grind you down to nothing, right? Jesus says, serve me, and instead of making you work and work and work without end, 
He says, I will give your soul rest. Jesus says, serve me. And what he says is, I'll give you a new identity, right? Instead of trying, instead of you having to try to make one for yourself in what you do. That Jesus invites you to turn away from the sinful things you serve and turn to him and take him on. The freedom we find in being a servant in Jesus is that our faith, let me just rephrase that. The, Jesus, the freedom we find in being a servant of Jesus is that when our faith is in him, we become servants of God and we're not bound to our sin. Like we aren't serving idols that will crush us. Instead, we're bound to Christ who's gentle and who's lowly, who cares for his servants. So the thing I think we need to ask ourselves is how is Jesus a better master than the things that we serve? Right? Maybe for you, the thing that you really want to serve is your parents' approval. Right? So you come here, you get the good grades, you do the things they like, you don't do the things that they don't like. What does it look like for Jesus to be a better master than serving your parents' approval? Well, one, in Jesus, we know that God accepts us by our faith in Christ. And that's an approval that we don't earn, but we receive. That means that we become God's children, and that's something that can never be taken away. God's approval, once we receive it, stays with us for eternity. Maybe for you, it's achievement. You think that if I can land the right job once I graduate here in three years, I'll be doing okay. What does it look like for Jesus to be a better master than serving your desire to have achievement? Well, one, it means that Jesus gives us the merit of his perfect obedience. Jesus came to earth and fulfilled God's law perfectly, and he gives you, by faith, the merit of his obedience. Right? We can receive his perfect obedience and rest in it, knowing that no matter what we achieve or don't achieve, what's mostly true of us is that God accepts us in Christ. So in Christ, we become like him. We, become, we come after the way of Jesus as servants. And this is a beautiful thing because in Christ, we serve a good master who cares for us, who's gentle, who's lowly, who gives us rest in our souls. And the last thing I want us to see tonight is the freedom we experience by God's mercy. That's our last point, the freedom of mercy. And looking towards God's mercy frees us from relying on ourselves. It frees us from looking towards ourselves for everything we need. Verse 2, it ends like this. It says, So our eyes look to the Lord, our God, till he has mercy upon us. And then in verse 3, we see a plea for mercy. The psalmist writes, Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough contempt. What we see in these two places, first, is that mercy is expected, and then mercy is needed. Here's what I mean. It's expected in the sense that the psalmist is saying we will look to God until he has mercy upon us, knowing that God is merciful. He's abounding in steadfast love. He's slow to anger. He's a merciful God. We know he will have mercy. And the second, it's needed in the sense that the psalmist knows I need God's mercy. Right? That's where the plea comes from. Right? When we understand our posture towards God, like we've been saying, is looking up. Right? When we understand that he is our creator, that we are servants to him, what we realize is that we are not in a position to make demands. Right? We're not in a position to tell God what we think is best for us. We're not in a position to tell God what we want because we think we know what we want. Right? Mercy isn't demanded, and that's because what mercy is, 
is you not getting what you deserve. Right? And as sinners, each of us deserve to be alienated from God. We deserve his wrath. We deserve his curse that's due to us for our sin. And it's in Jesus that we see God's mercy towards sinners. Because rather than getting what we deserve, we're spared through faith in Christ. Right, scripture tells us that God works all things for the good of his people. He works all things for his glory. So when we ask God for mercy, it isn't asking God to do something we want. But it's act, it actually looks like asking God to work his will in our lives. And by asking God for mercy, for relying on it, for pleading for mercy, we're asking him to continue the work that he's already doing in our lives through Jesus. It's trusting that his ways are better than our ways. It's asking him to align our desires with his will. Right? We're asking that God would continue to shape us. He would continue to make us more like Jesus because we need that. We need his help. And we're acknowledging that in Christ, God will not give us what we deserve for our sin. Um, some of you know this about me. I live with a baby. Uh, she's six months old. Her name's Phoebe. And the big thing in the Wagner house lately is that Phoebe is exploring the world of solid foods, right? We all know and love solid foods, but she's just getting started. And it's hilarious to watch and disgusting all at the same time. Um, I can go to that part later. But the thing about having a baby that's exploring foods is that anytime we're near her and we're eating, she's lunging at our food. Or if I'm drinking something out of a cup, she's lunging towards the cup. She's always trying to get it. This Sunday, I was at Cuff Press trying to drink coffee, and the baby was like trying to get my coffee. And I was like, girl, this is not going to end well if you keep doing this. But it didn't make her stop. When you have a baby who is trying to get your food, you want to give a baby food, but there are a lot of things that babies can't have, right? Babies can't have honey. They can't have a lot of rice. Babies can't have coffee for obvious reasons, right? So when she is with us and we're eating and she's trying to get our food, we actually can't give her like the big people food. We actually have to give her something that's more appropriate for her because it's good for her. And to be quite honest, even as a six-month-old, she doesn't always love that. She wants the food that's on our plate, not the mushed-up carrots that we're trying to give her. Right? We have to give her something that's good for her, even though she thinks there's something better. Relying on God's mercy looks a lot like that. It's trusting that he will give us what we need. He will give us what's good for us. He'll give us what's best for us because he loves us, because he's merciful, because he does good to those that he loves. And the freedom we have in trusting that God is merciful um, is a freedom to not rely on ourselves, but instead to trust that God is for us. Right? So often I think we relate to God like he's a cop, that he's waiting in the shadows for us to mess up, and then he's going to bust us. Understanding God's mercy actually looks completely different than that. Right? Because he's not a cop waiting for us to mess up so he can bust us. But he's a God who gives us good things. He gives us life in his son. He's a God who works things for the good of his people. Right? That's what it looks like to rely on God's mercy. So because God is merciful, we need to see how we can lean in and how we can rely on his mercy. And, and I think the question is this. How can you trust that God is actually good? How can you trust that God actually wants to give you good things, even when those things aren't the things that you think you need? Right? Maybe for you, it's trusting that God is working in you, working through you, 
in a really difficult situation with your roommate, right? We're at the point of this year, maybe the point of the semester even, or sometimes it feels impossible to live with someone else. What does it look like to trust that God will give you what you need to not only survive with your roommate, but actually to love them? Maybe for you, it's trusting God with your future, right? You don't know what's coming next. Graduation is a year away. Maybe it's eight weeks away. What does it look like for you to trust that God will provide for you, even if you don't know what that looks like? Maybe for you, it looks like trusting that God is changing your desires. You have sin you struggle with. You feel like you're never going to overcome it. Right? You can look to God and trust in his mercy, knowing that either in this life or in the life to come, you'll, you won't deal with that sin anymore. And that's good news. So to land the plane... Um, If there's one thing I want you to hear tonight, I want you to hear this. God is inviting you to see what's true. He's inviting you to see the reality of the world around us. First, that God is our creator, that he's above us. He's mighty. He's all powerful. He's all good. And at the same time, this is an invitation to look to him and see what's true, but also to look to yourself and see what's true. Right? The fact is, is that we're sinners. We serve the wrong things. We rely on our own strength. We rely on our own understanding instead of leaning on and relying on God. But what's also true is that we see God's mercy to sinners in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And through faith in him, we're able to cling to God's mercy. We're able to relate to God on his terms. We're able to become servants of a better master after the way of Jesus. So friends, my encouragement to you is simple. Lean into what's true. Lean into what's true about God, what you see in his word, what we see in the life of Jesus. And lean into what's true about you. And in that, trust Jesus, knowing that in him, God reorients us and he shapes us. And he takes us from wayward sinners and he transforms us into beloved children. So let's pray. God, we thank you that in Jesus, that you don't leave us in our sin, but you transform us that you take us from people who think that we know how to relate to you. You take us from people who think that we know what's best. You take us from people who serve the wrong things and you change us. You make us more like Jesus. So Lord, as we continue our time tonight and as we think through the scripture just through tonight and through this week, would you, um, like a drill, drill this truth in our hearts so that we might not only accept it, but love it and see the freedom that we have in Christ. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Y'all can stand and we're going to continue singing.